Coming up on this episode of the Delta Huddle podcast. Uh, the one thing I do recall in terms of feedback, in terms of like actual tangible feedback about the game, uh, Yoko Ono did come into the office one day and um, and I, I remember I was like away from my desk. I was so pissed. I missed her walking through the hallways. But um, but me and a couple of guys actually took an opportunity, I want to say with my brother too, to just like walk by the boardroom that Yoko Ono was in just to like get a glimpse of Yoko. And so, and so, you know, we did that and just like, we're like, that's Yoko. And just get why <laughs> so nervous and, and anxious about it. Can't pass up that up. Yep. Yep. We saw Yoko. Hello, I'm Stefan Stenrus, and this is the Delta Huddle podcast by CenterCode. The world of audio and music is wildly creative, and whether you're trying to craft the perfect song or find the right sound, feedback is essential. Now, what's even more creative and possibly more chaotic is where audio, music, and technology all intersect with each other. It comes with its own unique set of challenges, but also its own unique set of joys, whether that's handling a culturally significant musical legacy with care or collecting insights from a massive community of testers all across the world. Now joining me and Chris Rader to discuss these ideas is Jonathan Pardo, producer at Google-owned VR studio Alchemy Labs, and formerly of Sonos and Harmonix, the studio behind the Rock Band games. Now during our conversation, Jonathan shared some amazing insights and stories throughout his career, everything from handling the Beatles Rock Band with care, to the chaos mode of testing, and how a career in QA can help you identify other exciting roles and disciplines. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And now, Jonathan Pardo. John, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. Wonderful to have you here. Uh, Want to kick things off, uh, just asking you, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you've been, um, and what's kind of coming up for you next at Alchemy Labs. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been in the video game industry and in the tech industry for about 15 years now. So I started in video games at Harmonix Music. Um, so they invented Guitar Hero. When I joined, they were actively working on Rock Band 2. So I was a huge fan of those games. I'm a musician by trade. I was going to Berkeley for music production and engineering. So it was kind of the dream job. Um, and I tried doing both, you know, doing a, I was on the quality audio assurance testing uh, team. And uh, as I was working on that project and thinking about going back to school, because I started in the summer, I was like, I think if I went back to school, this is the job I would hope to get when I graduated. So what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I in school? But stay in cool, stay in school, kids. It's good. Um, I got the opportunity through Berkeley, so I'm very grateful for Berkeley. Um, but yeah, I mean, I basically just dropped out of Berkeley after trying to do both at the same time and started my career in the video game industry, which I didn't really anticipate. Um, obviously, I was uh, huge into games when I was a kid and uh, still lugged around my N64 no matter where I went. But um, getting into games in the audio world was really just kind of fortuitous for me. So I was there for 10 years um, doing audio QA, also doing uh, product management for one project, Fantasia Music Evolved. Um, also was the uh, lead audio composer and sound designer for this mobile game called Beatniks, which was adorable and is unfortunately no longer available. So don't even look for it, um, but it was a great, great game. 
uh, with the awesome team. Um, so really got my hands at a, uh, to try a bunch of different roles, um, which was really unique. It was a very creative atmosphere, just artists and musicians. And, you know, it was, it was, it was like going to college. It was in some ways even crazier than college <laughs> as I was doing it my way. Um, but yeah, uh, worked on some dream projects, worked on the Beatles rock band. Um, I was a huge fan of the Beatles. And right before that project, um, my brother, who's also an audio guy, um, he's a, an amazing composer, sound designer. Um, he actually was looking for his next thing. And I was like, you need to work at this company. So I got him over on the audio team and we got to work directly with each other on the Beatles rock band. And we grew up. I mean, he bought every single album. He's my big brother. So I just was like, you like the Beatles, so I like the Beatles. And yeah, we just loved it. And um, to be able to dig into those tracks and work on such an amazing, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want to call the Beatles an IP, but <laughs> to work on an, on an amazing project um, with music that we adored and knew like the back of our hands. So yeah, lots lots of amazing roles and and um, projects at at Harmonics, and I'm super grateful for them giving me those opportunities. Um, after that, started doing my own stuff. So I ended uh, near the end of my time at Harmonics. I started doing a lot more virtual reality. So I was a QA lead on Rock Band VR. Um, I was the uh, QA person on um, the R and D phase of Dance Central VR. Um, which was an, another amazing game. Um, so really kind of just like got really excited by that world. And so um, started uh, this small development company called Trio VR. And we developed this really kind of artistic, but um, uh, mindfulness-based uh, VR app called Circle. And it was another um, VR app in like the music sphere. It was kind of like a meditative um, music therapy experience. And the idea was you have these three different orbs in front of you and you can engage with them in different ways. And basically what you're doing is getting enveloped by these orbs, entering a new space and associated with those orbs is music tracks. And so what you're doing is now three more orbs appear in front of you in this kind of amorphous space and you engage with them again. And what you're doing is you know, unknowingly at first, but eventually you realize you're building a song and you're building the soundtrack to the experience in a really kind of, you know, low key seated experience, beautiful way. So lots of fun to work with, work on that project, um, continue doing more VR stuff. I'm actively working on this title called Saxophone. Um, and it is with my brother, uh, the Parter Brothers is the developer, uh, very creative name. And, um, and we are uh, actively speaking to uh, publishers, potential publishers, and really excited to be, you know, we have a great demo that we're psyched about. Um, I was just talking to him actually this morning, we had a quick meeting about it. So it's been fun to do it on the side. Um, and, but yeah, professionally, I worked at Sonos after, after Harmonics. That's where I started working using Center Code. So um, I was on the beta team there, started as a software beta program manager, eventually started managing the uh, beta quality engineering team, um, an amazing team of seven engineers across the world that are sitting in Center Code every day, except, you know, reviewing the feedback, reproducing these issues, escalating it to the proper teams. Um, and that was across every project that we were working on, hardware, software, integrations. Um, so really exciting work there. Um, and that kind of took my professional, you know, what I was what I was working on in terms of scope 
significantly grew. I was working on much smaller teams, much smaller projects, doing a lot of just manual testing, maybe some play tests, i.e. user research tests um, at Harmonix. But once we got into uh, Sonos using center code, it was significantly higher scale, just thousands of testers. We had a a testing group of 150,000 users in there um, and just like an amazing plethora of opportunities to find unique cohorts of users that matched exactly what we wanted to test. Um, so learned a ton around qualitative data, around quantitative data, how to you know make a test plan at that scale. Um, and it really, you know, as they say, you know, for six months are just like mayhem at a new place. And I was very properly in a chaos mode, <laughs> trying to get, get, you know, my feet steady there um, because Sonos is full of just genius people. And um, it was really humbling to work on the, those amazing, amazing products. I was a fan and actually beta tester before I joined. Um, so I already had a speaker that I got for free. Um, and I love the system. I have one in every single room. I'm looking at my Play 5 right there. Um, and so, yeah, as an audio guy, obviously, it was a dream to work on those projects. Um, and then from there, I moved over to my most recent role, which was at uh, Impact Biosystems. So a bit of a left turn, no, no audio focus there. But um, the reason I was hired is because I have this gaming experience and they were making a mobile app that had animations and 3D models and all of that stuff. And basically what I was hired for, the role was director of content management or content production, eventually became director of um, digital products, just managing the, the app side of development. And um, we had a great external team that then turned into a great internal team, really smart and talented engineers and animators, 3D modelers, UI UX designers. Um, I had a, a personal trainer that was kind of like my right-hand person for a long time. Um, and she was, I don't remember her title, but she was a athletic manager or something. And she was really just talented at understanding how, basically what we were building was a um, recovery system for the body. So how do you assess muscle tension, muscle, uh, muscle symmetry, those kind of things, assess them and then alleviate them. And so what we were building were two different products. One is a muscle scanner, which you put up to your muscle and it kind of does this five second little shake on your muscle and it gives you an assessment of how tight your muscle is. And then the other one was the massager. So just put that up to your muscle and massage it. And we were giving guidance and content for both of those, how to, how to assess your muscles and how to alleviate any issues. And so, Needless to say, I'm far from a athlete, um, so it was diving into the deep end once again. Um, but learned a ton around the, that whole world, and you know, got super in depth with like Whoop and Aura Ring and all of the you know other health trackers, Fitbit, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, learned a ton in that about that world, and was working directly with really smart people like Bill Parisi, who's into like fascia and really on the cutting edge of muscle health. Um, one of the coaches from the Dodgers, uh, Brandon something, who's a really great guy. So yeah, just like working with people that I had no place working with, but they were more than happy and willing to like give us feedback and their point of view. They were excited by the product. So it was a really unique opportunity. We shipped the build, uh, the app in October and um, yeah, really proud of the work we did there. 
And that brings me to today, or I should say this week. Um, next week, I'm starting my new role at uh, Owl Kami Labs, uh, OWL, uh, the virtual reality development company owned by Google. And um, they're making amazing work. I, I've, I've known this, this team and the founders since the beginning when they made Job Simulator. Well, I guess that wasn't their beginning, but that was the VR beginning for them. And, um, and they've just skyrocketed. They're one of the best in the business. And so I'm super pumped to be a producer over there starting in about, I don't know, six days. So it's going to be great. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So you've really covered the, the gamut of pretty much anything that anyone could imagine from audio to fitness and now into VR, which is yeah. awesome. Uh, I'll engage in some intense flattery here. <laughs> um, the Beatles rock band did really get me into the Beatles. I think nice. I sank couple hundred hours into oh, that man. game and you know allowed me to explore the catalog and yeah. all that stuff and you know my parents have the cds and everything but i think that was kind of the point where um you know i seriously got into them and started listening to them That's a lot awesome. so thank you for being a part of that project oh, and uh it's it's interesting you know you you said you didn't want to call the beatles an ip <laughs> right and i was kind of thinking about this the other day and even though it's a video game you know that video game kind of exists as a part of their catalog of work yeah. in a sense yes right? i so, i think um, i would agree with that yeah to be a part yeah of no totally i think it's it was you know i don't know how much they think that is <laughs> but like from like a cultural point of view <laughs> like we we took it very yeah. seriously like the the intro sequence is in a is like a beautiful piece of art just by itself it was made by the artist that made all the gorillas music videos so it's very stylized it's like it basically is one humongous Easter egg, you know, just watching that thing. Like if you know the Beatles and their world and their music videos and their songs. Um, so it's just like every step along the way, everybody that was working on that project. And I can't I can definitely not say this about every project I work on, but that one more than anyone else. It was like we felt like we were handling just like, you know, the Holy Grail or something. And we took it it was very daunting. It was very daunting. And so, you know, working directly with the families or the artists from the Beatles, like that was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of stress, um, but, you know, a passion project for a lot of people. Yeah. What was that like from a QA perspective? Because, I mean, you have an entire band's history kind of at your fingertips. Yeah. How did you guys make sure that it was handled correctly and everything kind of sounded proper? Yeah, great question. I mean, that was something we talked about often. Um, so as I said, I was on the uh, audio QA team, um, which, you know, I remember when we were working on the project, there was the audio QA team in the pit, as we called it. Um, or we, we called ourselves Aqua, like A-U-Q-A. -A. Um, so we were in the Aqua pit. And it was literally like, if you're in the office, it's like the lowest place you could get to other than the basement. And so it felt just like this pit. It was just a bunch of like, it was a very fratty vibe with like a super bizarre group of human beings that all gelled really well together. And we were right outside the audio team's doors. And so they actually had rooms with doors. It was luxurious. And they, um, I remember, so my brother was like literally in the door in the room next to me. And we would, you know, he would like call me in and say like, Hey, come check out this track. And he would like be listening to Michelle. And, um, it was, that song is, you know, a, a standard if, if it's anything. And it, it ends with actually a, uh, fade out. 
And, um, and he brought me over and he was just like, listen to this. And he, he removed the fade out and just let it play to the end. And George Harrison's playing guitar and he ends it on this like really cheesy major seventh chord. And it's just like, you can see, you can see them in the, in the studio, at least George Martin just being like, uh, no, <laughs> that didn't work. Out. Yeah, yeah. We'll fade that out. So getting this, yeah. this little glimpses into like that world in a way that we've never had before was it was something it was beautiful um and, but but all of that to say once we were working on it in the game like we we took it super seriously and so there were some things that we did in rock band that we just kind of we didn't even need to be asked by their team by the you know beatles team to do it we just knew it was the right thing to do like we didn't want to drop out uh, audio tracks when you were playing the game and messed a note up. Like the idea of us messing with the actual audio of um, of the of the band. I think we like ducked. You know, if you if you're playing guitar and you're missing notes in rock band, we duck the part entirely and we go. So we're not going to do that to the Beatles. That is the Beatles. So we yeah, exactly. we basically yeah. determined like, okay, we were not going to do these. We will lower yeah, the yeah. volume just to acknowledge that you're messing up. But, you know, those are the kind of very micro decisions that made it a really compelling experience and more than just a game. Um, it was a way to kind of immerse yourself into the music um, and feel like you're a part of it without it being too gamey. So, all, yeah, there were tons of little decisions like that around the audio, um, but we had access to just treasure troves of um, not only music, but banter of the band that when they were yeah. in the studio and we use yeah. that, like we, we actually use that during loading. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. And it was, I think it was era specific as well. So if you were playing like Eleanor Rigby, yeah. you would get audio outtakes and banter from when they were recording revolver or yeah. if it was Abbey road, you know, you get some of that. So that was really, really interesting to me just as, I mean, I'm big audio nerd yeah. as well. So hearing that is, it adds to the experience. So thank you for adding that <laughs> in. Um, this is another question for the audio nerds out there. Was it tricky trying to get kind of the mono mixes and the stereo mixes to kind of work? Because I know that there's kind of a certain period where the Beatles were like, everything's mono. And then they kind of expanded into totally. Stereo. Yes. I mean, that was, um, I think that was a, an exploration type project, you know? So I know that Caleb Epps, who was, I don't remember his role on the project, but he was a lead on many projects um, and one of our great audio folks uh, at Harmonix. He and a handful of other people, I want to say Amin Zaruki and possibly actually flew out to Abbey Road Studios uh, in London and got the chance to sit uh, and, you know, get these tracks, get these stems, work with uh, Giles Martin, George Martin's son, who's very actively involved with, um, he's a you know, esteemed audio engineer himself uh, and producer. And so he had the opportunity or we had the opportunity to work with him um, on these. And so um, there was some back and forth. I don't recall the exact uh, process, but of actually, you know, doing the digital work of splitting out the vocal parts and different harmonies, the instruments into different tracks so that we can, you know, do some of our own mixing in the game as necessary for, uh, the ability to lower and raise volume. So, um, so yeah, it was, I mean, you know, all of, all of that work was, was so above my pay grade. And, <laughs> you know, when you were handling the tracks that I had, cause I had some access to like the, 
the dry vocal stems, but they were super compressed, like not at all. And I remember they were behind like some lock and key. It was like some file that was just like, if you had access to that, you were lucky. And I would get temporary access, you know? So, but just to be able to listen to John Lennon's vocals by themselves, dry with no effects, like those kind of things were, it, it, it was really magical um, to be able to hear hear them in that state, that really raw state. So yeah, it was, it was a, it was a unique, unique thing to have access to those stems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sort of bringing this back to testing and feedback in QA, did you receive um, any kind of really important or like game changing feedback from kind of members of the Beatles family mm. or um, still living Beatles during development? Cause I had to imagine they were pretty, closely kind of tied up in how this game was. Yeah. Created. Yeah. They totally were. Um, yeah. I don't know the exact story. And I know we talked a little bit about this when we first started discussing, but I do know that Danny Harrison, George Harrison's son was um, kind of present at the impetus of the conversation of making this title. And it, <laughs> I'm totally probably making this up. I have this memory of hearing maybe from Alex Rogopoulos himself, the co-founder of Harmonics, that they were like out on some vacation in some island, which sounds luxurious, but like Alex Rogopoulos sitting there with Danny Harrison having a margarita or something and just started talking about, you know, the Beatles rock band. And I want to say that it was even Danny's idea. Um, and the other thing that Danny was really excited about was the idea of um, actual guitar interface. So instead of just the five buttons, like, playing an electric guitar and having, you know, you try to play the chords and the lead parts, um, two different tracks, um, which we eventually did in Rock Band 3, which was a lot of fun and um, a really unique project. But um, but yeah, that conversation started, I want to say, with Danny Harrison and then, you know, started talking to Apple and all them. Um, and uh, the one thing I do recall in terms of feedback, in terms of like actual tangible feedback about the game, uh, Yoko Ono did come into the office one day and um, and I, I remember I was like away from my desk. I was so pissed. I missed her walking through the hallways. But um, but me and a couple of guys actually took an opportunity. I want to say with my brother too, to just like walk by the boardroom that Yoko Ono was in just to like get a glimpse of Yoko. And so and so, you know, we did that and just like we're like, that's Yoko. And just get walking. <laughs> so nervous and, and anxious about it. Can't pass up that up. Yep. Yep. We saw Yoko. Um, um, but, but she had artistic feedback. So obviously we're representing the Beatles as these 3d characters. And so she had some direct feedback around John Lennon, which was like very interesting feedback and totally legit. Basically she was like, those are not John Lennon's eyes. Those are not John's eyes. And, and we were like, I remember the team, we, the artists in the team, in the project were like, what is that? What? <laughs> they're not his eyes. And she's like, they're they're like something like they're dead. Like their, their eyes have no feeling. They're no emotion. Those are not John's eyes. And so it was either one person or a team of people. They buckled down to fix his eyes and get it right. And so they analyzed video footage of his eyes and how they move, how they squint, you know, when he's smiling, how they look, when he's frowning, how they look. And, and, and it, I want to say they did it for everybody because it, it worked. Like you can just look at John Lennon's 3D character and it's not just this, you know, uh, this strange puppeteer version of him. It is, you're, you're feeling like that's John Lennon. And so that's the kind of stuff that um, you're not just making a video game about the Beatles. Like you're making a video games for the Beatles, like with the Beatles and, and to be able to have 
the trust of the families um, of the Beatles and their input and then accepting that input and going back to them and like getting the thumbs up from Yoko Ono that George's or John's eyes look good. Like that's like, you know, it's a, it's, it really makes you feel like you're doing something special. Um, so yeah, that they were, they were absolutely involved. And um, I do recall also George Harrison's uh, wife um, was present at like the reveal at E3 and, um, and I got to like, even demo it for like it was it was an insane project i feel like i peaked early I, there was one memory of me like actually in a um in a uh luxury suite at a hotel demoing it to to the rock beatles rock band the finished product to tom hanks and rita wilson his wife and i was i found myself literally between them tom hanks playing drums and Rita Wilson singing harmonies with me because it was the first song, our first game that we did uh, vocal vocal uh, harmonies for, and um, and I was you know because I'm a vocalist that was like what I got to work on, so I knew it really well. So I got this crazy chance to sing next to Rita Wilson, and she was like getting all excited at the end of the song. She's like, "What does that mean?" She's looking at the results screen. And I'm like, "Oh, that's that says that we got like 15 out of 20 vocal harmonies. That's like insane!" Like, and she's like, "That's good." And I was like, "Yeah, that's good." And she's like, "Amazing!" And she's like, "Give me a big hug." And I'm just like, "That's Tom Hanks. This is Rita Wilson. This is strange." Um, so yeah. Well, the question I have to ask is, did you guys play "Lovely Rita"? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think perfect, so. Right? I don't think it was in the perfect. original song list, but yeah, missed opportunity. Yeah missed opportunity oh well but yeah um we had talked a little bit before recording that you kind of had that story in your pocket no. and i originally thought that it was going to be kind of an audio feedback thing like oh the sound needs to be tweaked a little bit uh, but instead it was kind of this personal almost kind of emotional piece of feedback like oh john's eyes aren't right which yeah is, it's that's really interesting right because it goes beyond the music yeah right yeah. and uh, you really did have to capture their personas yes. very accurately, right? Because it was beyond simply, you know, they made incredible albums, but they were also kind of this worldwide force and anyone could pick any of the four of them out in a crowd, yeah. right? So yeah. that was really, really cool. Just and very that. important, very important details. Uh, yeah. When when you said it earlier, Stefan, like y your parents had the, the CDs. My parents had the vinyls because <laughs> uh, they're a little, little bit of age. Now, but, well, well, my, my um, dad probably had the vinyls too, but he worked for BMG in like the nineties. So as soon as CDs came oh, out, nice. I was like, yep, I'm just going to go straight to digital. So he was, yeah, that's funny. That, but go ahead. Yeah. Definitely better yeah. <laughs> in terms of uh, quality, D different quality. Different, different um, quality. But was, what's interesting is it, it was a, a, a pathway for you, right? So like, yeah, you could have listened to the CDs or the vinyls or whatever it is, but at the time you probably were more into video games. So it was a delivery method to get that, you know, the history and culture and, and, and something to an, an audience that either, either younger and, and, and interested in, in, in gaming, uh, or they're really passionate about being immersed in something uh, that they're excited about. So when you talk about Tom Hanks and, and trying to get in there, he's, he was probably passionate about the the Beatles and wanting to get access and, and see that and and being able to play with them, right? That's a, that's a whole different level of immersion. I know Dave Perry, when we um, had our, our very first episode, he talked about getting the call from uh, Neverland Ranch um, about Michael Jackson wanting to play um, The Matrix, right? So it's like these people, like he probably was really into the the Matrix series at the time, right? So there's this connection of, of you know, bringing um, 
just aspects of uh, that. That was more pop culture being the matrix and whatnot. Um, but that level of quality is so important because it can break that, the illusion, the immersiveness and the, the importance of that. Right. So when you talk about not wanting to like mess up the, the guitar, right? Like if, and that was a big part of guitar here. It sounded awful. If you, if you messed, <laughs> if you missed a couple of, uh, a couple of chords, like, and, and you fail quickly. Um, but you still need that, that, that cues those cues that the, the information we call it like feedback um back to the the user about hey you you are messing up <laughs> right you, you're not hitting this here's you know try to get them back on course and whatnot so uh, i i love those those level of details while still retaining um quality and you know the 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 um the nod to them and saying yeah here we're not going to mess up your um your legacy yeah so i, I really appreciate yeah that. it's uh that's a super that's nice. a really good point it's it's we didn't take our jobs as qa testers as um okay we needed to get to like a reasonable level of quality like this was this was for our own ability to sleep at night we had to make sure this was at the yeah. utmost premium quality like and it wasn't just like quality. yeah quality of quality with a capital yeah. q so that was um it was yeah it was super unique and and i think that everybody you know that worked on it whether you had an interest in the beatles or not you just knew that you're working on something special yeah. Yeah. I, I actually had a similar start to my career, like like you. Hmm. Not the college part of it. I did not go to Berkeley or anything <laughs> fancy. <laughs> um, but I, I started in, in QA as well. And nice. it's funny, you talked about um, the basement. Mm -hmm. uh, when I worked at, at WD, we actually had a basement layer. Oh my gosh. And there was that was where like the ultimate quality assurance was going mm -hmm. on for the, the actual hard drives. And it was in like clean rooms and people wearing like, it looked like, well, like white suits, so like <laughs> they're basically like hazmat down oh downstairs. Um, but I was I was in the the third level of the building where we had quality, but we were still like in our dungeon, which was like a lab. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we would have to go through everything was static proof. Everything was like you had to make sure that you you went through the proper training because you're still you know, touching electronics and whatnot. But it was it was really neat to me because I, like I worked in a grocery store before that mm -hmm. and customer service, so I had some aspect of quality. I was always a tech person. Mm -hmm. I was really into gaming and building my computers and all that fun stuff. Um, but quality gave me access to people around the company, mm -hmm. so like I got to learn what I wanted to do within tech, yeah. right? So I was in quality. I go talk to support people and I talk to the product management team. Um, I would talk to marketing yeah. and the events and I just kind of like built my connections. I'm like, what are, what are you people doing mm -hmm. over here? I want to, I want to learn what you're doing. And you, it just takes you on this like cool career, right? Cause quality is important. It's kind of the root of everything being good, yeah. but then you can like build those connections. And like, I ended up in product and now I'm in marketing, uh, for whatever reason, but I'm still, <laughs> <laughs> and my nature is someone who cares about quality and someone who cares about, um, products and I treat our marketing like it is a product i completely so I, agree. I totally relate to your story and it's <laughs> it's a uh, super cool that we have that that small connection yeah between. yeah i think it's i think it's um it's a very good way to get i want to choose my words uh wisely here because it's really easy to say qa is a good way to get your foot in the door but that assumes that you know what you want to do and that you're just going to use it as you know a way to to like weasel your way to the role that you want. Like, di I, that's not what I want to say. What I actually want to say is it's a great way to figure out what you want to do because 
kind of just like going to college undeclared. Like you're trying out all these different things. You're figuring out what you like, what you're good at. Um, being in QA, usually you're a, you're in a role where you're a generalist. And so what you're testing, at least in the video game world, is art, audio, you know, functionality, uh, connectivity, you know. Um, so it's like it's a multitude of different things that you just kind of have to be a generalist at. And um, what that gives you is if you're embedded, ideally, you are you have that opportunity to interface with all of these different disciplines and really get to understand how a game is being built or how an app is being built. And if you have those relationships, you start to get to figure out like these are the traits that an engineer has. And that's, you know, maybe general generalist, but generally engineers have this trait and that's why they're really good at it. Generally artists have this trait and that's why they're really good at it, et cetera. And that's for me, I, I was in QA, like I said, for a very long time, like 10 years off and on throughout different projects. Um, and, but like I said, I got my hand at a few different roles. And what that did for me was help me figure out what do I like to do and why do I like to do it? And so for people to like kind of have that opportunity to interface with people, like got my hand at product stuff. And I've been doing that off and on for a long time. I like it for a multitude of reasons. And I don't like it for a multitude of reasons. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of investment emotionally and creatively that you have to put as a product person. And if, you know, I'm a creative person, so I like doing that. But if it's for somebody else's product, you know, I'm working for a company and I'm building what they have asked me to build. Maybe I'm into it for one project, maybe I'm not for the next. And so that's, you know, there's something emotionally that's difficult for me as a creative person to invest myself into something that I'm not in love with, but I need to be in love with. I, like, I need to be the one in the room that's in love with this thing. And what I figured out about myself is I'm a people person. I love to communicate. I love to collaborate. I love process because when you're in QA and you see that there's no process, you're not going to hear, you're not going to hear squat um, because nothing's going to get documented. Nothing's going to get communicated. Nothing. There's no transparency. I like likely. And so what I figured out is, uh, you know, a person in this industry that I wanted to do more than anything else is I wanted to, make sure that the processes were sensible, functioning, um, consistent, understood across the team. And I was just always trying to influence that, but that really wasn't my role. And so that's where I figured out project, program, production, management. All of that stuff is, those are the people that get to do that. And what they're doing is maybe less creative, uh, maybe less impactful to the actual final product, but they're supporting a team of people to build something. And, and if you can be that person, then what you're doing is you're bringing cohesion, you're bringing consistency, you're bringing a certain level of lowering anxiety levels because everybody doesn't have to worry about the process. And so I figured out that that's what I love to do. And it's taken 15 years <laughs> to figure it out, trying a thousand different things. And maybe I'll change my mind next year. But, um, but there's, you know, that's the thing about quality is like, you're touching all of these different disciplines. You get to try things out. You get to, you know, learn what you think you like and then learn, actually, I don't like that. Um, so I think it's a great way for people and it, it, they're usually entry level positions, you know, so it's a great way for somebody to kind of figure out, I like this industry. I just don't know what to do. Figure out what you want to do. It's the uh, it's the long and winding road. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, I had to, I had to say, but, uh, but speaking of process and communication and team, um, Sonos. Yeah, uh, you kind of kicked this off. 
by saying that being at Sonos, at least for like the first six months, mm. was like chaos mm. time, which kind of brought me into this kind of idea. It's like, oh, when you're in chaos time, that's where some of the most creative and like fruitful things come yeah. from. Um, but you also mentioned that you worked with the community of 150,000 testers. Mm -hmm. So I'd just love to hear more about what it was like at Sonos, um, you know, beta testing in that environment. Mm. What made that really special for you and what kind of stood out? Yeah, it was, so the product itself from the forefront, it was, it's a great product. So I'm, I was really, you know, I didn't feel like there was much that I had to do to like <laughs> develop this product, um, which that was like, you know, if there's a reason that I like working with smaller teams, it was that, but how can you say no to working on this product that is already amazing? Like you get the opportunity to support even in your, the smallest little corner of it, to support this humongous, like amazing, premium, high quality product. So I was really excited by that, just that. Um, whatever my role was, I was like, if I can support this, great. Um, and so going from, like I said, kind of more manual testing, having, you know, managing teams of QA testers, um, running very small user research tests, to then figuring out how does that, how do those test plans relate to these test plans where, like, you know, we, every test didn't have 150,000 users in it, but like they had, you know, tens of thousands of users in it likely. And so how do I take advantage of those people? That sounds bad, but <laughs> how do I utilize those, <laughs> those kind testers, um, to be able to prove out this product, um, prove success of this feature, um, uh, you know, confirm quality of some integration, some third-party integration, those kind of things. So it really was a project-to-project -project, uh, um, decision. And that was, you know, I had this great manager that you, you at least Chris know, uh, Jeremy Barrett, um, who kind of took me under his wing as a pr new program manager. Um, and he, you know, he hired me because of my QA background. He's like, we need that, that point of view on this team. We don't have it. Um, and so that he was excited by that and he just let me, you know, he helped me fill in the gaps in my experience. And, um, what he taught me is like, you don't go into a room with a product manager or, or whoever is like kind of the key stakeholder and say, what do you want to test? What do you want to know? Um, because that the biggest, the biggest thing that, you know, people start their sentences with that is a, he taught me was the biggest red flag was it would be nice to know dot, 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 because just saying it would be nice to know something, uh, that's not a KPI that you can test against. That's, there's no clear objective of why you're trying to test that. So, so really that was like the, the goal, like from that first conversation, um, like, what are we trying to learn and why? And, and like, if we understood those things, it wasn't up to the product manager or the key stakeholder to be able to make the decision around how we're gonna test it. That was our job, but we had to really understand what they were building, how we can test it properly, and what were we going to learn? And if we learned something that said, you know, this is yes, ready for test. What does that mean tangibly? But also, you know, if it doesn't meet that criteria, what are we going to do about it? Have, having a mitigation plan up front. Um, these were things that, you know, seem basic to me now, but just like were really valuable to kind of have a template for. Um, I've literally had like my notepad with the five or 10 questions that he's like, you should always ask these. And I was like, I will always ask these. <laughs> and so, you know, being really rigid at the beginning and then eventually realizing I could 
find my own way of asking these questions. Um, so, so for me, it was, you know, taking a step back from the specificity of it, you know, the qualitative versus quantitative testing, like, is this something that we want people to give feedback on? So let's say we're testing airplay. Um, we know that people aren't going to just stumble upon airplay. So first of all, we need to announce this feature. We need to tell them this is something you're actively testing, which if it's a smaller feature that we just want to make sure it doesn't break everything, we might not announce it at all and let people just manually discover it. Um, but if it's something that we knew we wanted a lot of eyes on, um, you know, okay, let's look at airplay. It's an iOS only uh, feature. So that's our first cohort, right? We only want people that have iOS devices. So that was a, um, a key part of the, uh, one of the, what do they call them? Tools or whatever. Uh, one of those little tiny, um, surveys that they filled out in center code to be able to say, this is something that, you know, this is my device that I use for my, uh, center code or my Sonos system. So being able to identify, okay, iOS users. Okay. How about iOS users that have utilized AirPlay. Like, I don't, I don't recall if that was specifically something that we had access to, but, you know, kind of diving deep into their data because we did have a lot of access to additional data that we didn't even collect from regular users for our beta testers. Um, that was something that they agreed to in their terms when they signed up on Center Code. So being able to have access to all of those additional usage data features, um, we could we could really kind of get a better sense of what users we needed, how to collect them, all of that. And so identifying the user cohort, that's one specific thing, being able to you know, know how we're going to reach out to them. So putting the comms together, putting the surveys together, really understanding, you know, making sure not only that they are willing to test, but they're willing to test the specific thing that we're testing. And then actually, you know, inviting them to the test, um, bringing them along for a ride for all of the updates and all of those things that we make, all the changes, the bug fixes, um, and then, you know, reviewing all of that data, which was a lot. And so that was that team, the beta quality engineering team, um, just sitting there day after day, reviewing this feedback, working directly with folks, sometimes having to get on the phone with people. Um, it was, you know, that their role was kind of this dual um, quality assurance tester and support person, um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we don't completely bust people's systems. We also, if we did bust their system, we don't want to fix it right away. We want to understand why it's busted. Like, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It could be this new feature that we had just introduced. It could be just something with their setup. So, you know, we kind of have to like ride that line between supporting them and not supporting them too quickly, really get an understanding of the issue. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a ton of work for every single project because you kind of had to go back to the drawing board every time and sometimes you know repeated projects would come up or sim oh this is very similar this is a new music service that we're introducing introducing that's very similar to the last beta program i ran on music services so copy and paste a lot of that um but yeah you know there, you just can't template beta programs as much as you wish you could there's probably about like 75 percent of it that you can but there's always new stuff to test there's always new surveys to write there's always new questions to ask and so really being kind of okay with that that like every project that i take on i have to kind of put a fresh pair of eyes on this and um and go go after it in a creative way that was the fun of it it, it kept it really you know fresh and interesting Okay. Yeah. monotonous uh, if you're just running through the same exact mold each time i, I think yeah. our intersection actually at that point was um i came in 
as you guys were hitting too much of a scale. Mm. So I think you're like, okay, we need That's support right. in the scale. And it was, okay, where can we find that, you know, 75% template? Where can we, yeah. um, I don't want to say cut corners, but become more efficient at the way we're managing this specifically, obviously with, with center code. And mm -hmm. I brought whatever knowledge I could from outside, uh, the, your industry or outside of you, your company specific. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was always, I, I thought that was the interesting thing was the, you said the importance of process and standardization mm. because it gets you to a point way quicker. And then it just takes that little bit of extra, the human to apply something to make it, you know, really, really great. Yeah. So there's a lot of processes that can be completely automated and there's a lot mm. of templates to use like the maybe it's the the standard types of feedback like we call them you know mm -hmm. issues ideas mm -hmm. and praise like mm -hmm. okay that's the yeah. standard feedback totally now every team may have specific questions that they want to ask so they may want a, a specific survey or yeah. your product that has new features that are new technologies that no one's seen how can you template something that doesn't exist yeah. in the world yeah um but making room for that, for you to be able to have some space to focus on, that's kind of the key to success. It's like, okay, you need to find the templates, you need to find the standards, you need to find the, the repeatable processes, mm -hmm. and you need to make those produce this level of quality with mm -hmm. this much attention, this much effort into it. Totally. Um, and then you can put all of your skills and abilities and um, make, you know, get this better information from somebody, whether or not it's a custom survey or... Um, responding to feedback that's one thing that was was kind of cool was we were going through feedback and this was i, I think in your santa barbara campus with uh hassan mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we were we were looking at feedback coming through and it's like hey this is what's taking a lot of time mm. um, we have these standard problems these are known issues and we have to respond to every single one of them yeah. uh, and is there a way that we could maybe automate this and get them to our support articles. And we came up with these cool like macros on automation to push. That's right. You know, it was like something like 20% of the stuff was just starting to get automated. And I was yeah. like, oh, cool. Now you have more time to put into the 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 nitty gritty stuff that you need to get to get more details. Totally. So that was that was my my fun interaction with also seeing the Sonos campus was freaking awesome. Yeah. That was yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. That was my favorite part of it, but yeah, back in the day when offices were a thing. I mean, they still are, I think. But <laughs> but last time I visited the Sonos I office, every once in a while. I went to the beta section, <laughs> yeah. and there was one person there. James Chan was sitting there alone. He was like, <laughs> "So, <laughs> yeah, yeah." Um, but yeah, I completely agree. I think that there's uh, like the templates of center code. Like that was that was something that gave us the ability to like kind of relieve the stress of creating that from scratch, like kind of duplicating those, but not only being able to like just get started quickly, but to be able to compare um, data for this current project to previous projects, like being a, we, you know, we did a lot of integrations with Tableau to be able to visualize our data and understand you know, obviously active projects, like how many open issues do we have? You know, what's our SLAs? Are we meeting those? Those kind of things. Um, how many, you know, high priority issues do we have that we have to address? But, you know, long term to be able to compare against previous projects, how is this project doing compared to previous projects? You know, how many people are signing in to, to the project at all compared to previous ones? Are we engaging with them enough? Are we getting enough feedback? You know, are, do we need to start communicating in different ways in new ways and additional ways? Um, and so really kind of, you know, giving us the opportunity to say, 
this project against previous ones, the only way you can really compare that is, is if it is apples to apples. And so having the same types of feedback, the same templates of projects, really not you know having too much variability for our sake to be able to look at the data, but also for the user's sake, so they know what to expect when they're getting into a project. You know, I've tested before, here's a new project. I got this like the back of my hand um, and not, you know, completely changing thing, especially for our really active users or super users, like giving them the opportunity to have a steady world because we were kind of, when we first got into center code, it was wild west, baby. It was like everybody that was a program manager got to create their own unique template. And, you know, it was uh, a free for all in a way that wasn't really successful. And so that those templates that we created and eventually, you know, really got consistent. It made our lives easier. It made the lives of the testers easier. And it just, you know, looked better. It looked more consistent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's awesome that Center Code was able to help you guys standardize all that and visualize all yeah. of it and collect all of it together and just be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So we're, we were glad to help out nice. there. Uh, unfortunately, we are coming up on time. Oh, um, this has been an amazing conversation. I think we've covered more bases than <laughs> I was planning to. And, you know, just really, really cool. Yeah. Um, so kind of my last my last question for everybody, and I'll start with you, John, is we're kind of living in the midst of this kind of AI revolution mm -hmm. now, right? It seems like AI is at the forefront of everyone's minds. We have GPT-4 out right. there. We have BAR. Right. You know, it seems like we're on a, a new frontier, right? It's like the start of the internet or the start of social sure. media in a way. Um, how do you see AI changing QA testing, beta testing in the future and vice versa? How do you think these two tools are going to interact? With mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's inevitable. AI is going to take over yeah. in so many different areas of the tech world. And so I, you know, I can speak from my own experience and from what I've seen and what I'm excited about. Um, I'm no expert with AI, but but in my mind, the human element is always going to be required. Um, I think that there's a lot that can be done around testing to make lives easier. You know, one of the things that I've heard that was like super exciting and scary is some story about somebody that was, um, they, they requested ChatGBT to develop some code that was super complex. Um, it might have not been ChatGPT, it might have just been some AI, but this AI created this code and it was so complex to the point where it was almost incomprehensible by the engineers. And like, those are the kind of stories that are like, well, if you can't like QA your own work because it's not your own work, that's a worrisome place to be because that you're building something that you don't know what level of security, you know, it is at. And um, you have no way of resolving issues if issues do arise. So there's, there's like, a really cool usefulness for it to be able to develop code quickly and efficiently, like awesome. Like let's try to figure that out, but also to like have guidelines around what our expectations are. I think that's really important and valuable um, and processes in place that like allow us to do this in a smart way um, while being effective. So yeah, I, 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 at the end of the day, the people using these products that could be influenced by AI, they're going to want something that they like and want to use. So in terms of testing, people are always going to be necessary. Feedback is always going to be necessary. Like, like you're not going to be able to t ask an AI, do you think this new feature is good? Like that's, that's not their place. We are still building things for human beings. So being able, you know, assuming we're talking about consumer products, of course, but, and because that's my world, like that's where I'm thinking, like the human element is always going to be necessary. Being able to have AI, 
analyze quantitative data more efficiently? She's like, absolutely. Like, have I built uh, dashboards that were completely looking at the wrong data? And I was telling a product manager, we're good to go. And then I find out, you know, a month later from an engineer that that data point that I was looking at, that data set was the wrong data set. And it was named the same thing. And I'm like, why is it named the same thing? And they're like, I'm sorry, no one knows that answer. Um, you know, those kind of mistakes that, that occur, like those are the kind of things that I would love to utilize an AI for, to just like, say like, yes, I'm going to manually create this new dashboard. I'm going to find all these data sets. I'm going to hook them together in a way that I hope and pray is right. I'm going to ask a, you know, data engineer to like review it, but there's a little bit of, you know, like, like I said, hope and pray. I hope hope this is the right data. Um, Being able to utilize AI to actually take a look at, okay, I want to just ask a question. I want to ask Jeeves this, you know? I want to be able to say like, how many users are actively using this feature on this type of device and they used it for more than an hour? You know, like those kind of questions that would take me hours to build a dashboard for. Um, that was the thing that I always hoped for at Sonos. And that was very lofty hopes. Like, I don't know if anybody's built something that complex for their uh, product, but that's the kind of stuff that I want access to. Um, and that's not somebody's opinion. That's not, how do you like this feature? Is this meeting your expectations of a feature, your level of quality that you would hope for, level of premium, whatever. So at the end of the day, qualitative data is going to be human beings. That's always going to be human beings. And we're always going to need it. And we're always going to need to test it with those people, um, whether it's one-on-one user research test or large-scale beta test or delta tests. Um, that's that's going to be necessary. So. I'm not too concerned about you guys. I think you're going to have a thriving business for a while, <laughs> but but there's always opportunities there. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we can kind of uh, exist at that crossroads of the human, you know, uh, qualitative and the AI quantitative yeah. and then merge them together into this kind of perfect imaginary cyborg of uh, <laughs> feedback that just makes products uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, that's... This has been excellent. I think we have a lot of really great takeaways from here. So, uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. So many wonderful stories. Absolutely. Um, So glad you could share them with us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Stefan and Chris. Always a pleasure seeing you. Um, And I'm so grateful for this podcast and what you guys do. It's it's an admirable thing to uh, actually listen to people and (laughs) help people help (laughs) product managers, quality people, beta people, figure out how to ask for people's advice and opinions and what they like in features and stuff. Like this is a world that I believe in wholeheartedly. And no matter what my role is, I'm going to be, you know, kind of calling for people to ask, ask what somebody wants, ask what somebody likes. Mm -hmm. Like these are the things that are so basic that are so easy to miss. So I'm grateful for products like Center Code out there. The beautiful sentiment. Oh, please. My pleasure. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Delta Huddle podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a like or a five-star rating. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'll see you in the next episode and happy testing.